You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. All right, I'm going to pray for us and then uh, we'll jump right into the text for this morning. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the chance that we have to gather together with other believers this morning. God, we thank you for your word that you've given it to us in a language that we can read and study and understand together. And so, God, we pray that you would allow that to happen this morning, that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes and uh, give us understanding about what you want to teach us today. God, I pray that you would speak through me this morning. Um, God, that the Holy Spirit would fill me, that truth would be proclaimed today. Um, encouragement and conviction would also be experienced where it's needed by our people. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in First Thessalonians chapter 4, we have um, been trying to get into these verses for the past couple of weeks. And we will... Uh, We will, uh, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to continue to lay a foundation for why we're going to approach these verses the way that we are going to approach them. I told you there's a lot of disagreement about, about these verses by a lot of good people. Is this passage talking about a rapture? Is this passage talking about the second coming of Jesus? And so how you understand, um... Some other things about Scripture really shape how we read and study these verses. And so we're trying to take a step back and look at some different ideas that are going to shape how we understand these, this passage of Scripture. And then even more in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And then even more in 2 Thessalonians. Um, so a couple of weeks ago we looked at some arguments for the rapture. Arguments against the rapture. Why we should see... Um, Maybe some support in scripture for why there isn't a rapture. And then last week we really dealt with um, how as a church we really want to rally around the things that we can agree on. And then look at some things that we can disagree on and try to understand those things better. So last week I told you some things that we uh, agree on no matter how we view scripture in regards to end time stuff. We agree that Jesus is definitely coming back. That he's going to come back in a visible, physical way. Like there's not going to be any doubt that he comes back. We're told that by two angels in Acts. That he's coming back just like he left. There'll be a resurrection of believers to eternal reward and unbelievers to eternal punishment. That's something that we can agree on. That when Jesus comes back, there will be a resurrection. Believers to eternal reward. Whether that's in heaven or on a renewed earth. There'll also be eternal punishment for unbelievers. Um, in hell for eternity. We can agree on that. Death will be defeated was number four from last week. That death will ultimately be defeated. There's coming a time in creation where death will be put to an end. There will be no more death. And then all of God's plans will be accomplished as he intended. That's very important to me. That God doesn't change his plan. Um, He doesn't have to revise his plan. We may not fully understand his plan. But what we can trust in is that God intends to do what he's always intended to do. That's where we can find our hope and encouragement. That we may not always understand how the end times are supposed to play out. But what we can trust is that they are going to play out exactly like God planned for them to from before the foundation of the world. Some things that we can disagree on. We talked about the timing of Jesus' return, when he's coming back. We can disagree on rapture versus no rapture. We can disagree on uh, the timing of the book of Revelation. Remember we looked at some last week that some people believe everything in Revelation happens in the future. It's called the futuristic view. There's other really good people that believe a lot of Revelation has already happened. 
and that a few things will still happen in the future. That a lot of what's talked about in Revelation has already been accomplished during the time of AD 70 when Jerusalem fell. And a lot of that is prophetic talk about what was coming. Um, there was some horrific things that happened there with the Roman emperors at the time. There's a lot of people that believe most of Revelation has happened except for a few things. And then some people believe that Revelation is simply a cycle of history. That we continue to see things happening in Revelation over and over and over until Jesus comes back. And we can disagree um, about how to read the, the book of Revelation in regards to timing. And then the millennial reign, Revelation 20, it's a highly disputed chapter in Scripture. When does this thousand year reign of Jesus happen? Some people believe it's happening right now in heaven. Others believe that Jesus is going to rule and reign in the hearts of people and that the entire earth is going to become Christian before Jesus comes back. It's called post-millennialism. Then others believe that Jesus is going to come back, set up his earthly reign here on, on, on this earth, and that's going to last for a thousand years before he finally defeats Satan. So there's some disagreement about when Revelation 20 happens, and we can agree to disagree about some of those things. We looked at some reasons to study the end times last week. That there's blessing that we're told in Revelation uh, chapter 22. Blessing for studying end time prophecy. There's encouragement that comes from it. And it pushes us towards purity. A pure way of living. And then last week, kind of, again, going back to this idea. Why are we going to approach 1 Thessalonians 4 as a second coming and not a rapture? And we look specifically at Israel and the church. From what I see in the New Testament, they have been brought together as one people of God. Now, I told you several weeks ago that one of the arguments for the rapture is a belief that Israel, national Israel, and the church are separate peoples of God. And so when Jesus comes back, he raptures the church, and then there's seven years of tribulation where God deals with national Israel. But if you see Israel and the church as one people of God then it kind of loses the need for a rapture. And so it, it causes us not necessarily to read a rapture into the text. And we looked at some reasons for why uh, we can see Israel and the church as one people of God. Specifically in the New Testament, um, we see we look at several passages, especially in, in Ephesians 5, where it talks about how God has come to make one people. He's come to tear down racial divisions. We look at who actually is a descendant of Abraham. And, and Paul and other writers of the New Testament say, look, it's, it's people who genuinely have faith. Those are the real descendants of Abraham. And so it seems in the New Testament that it's constantly helping us to, to understand that being a national Jew is not what is most important. That they were God's chosen nation, but the real Israel are people that have faith in Christ. And that includes Gentiles. And we look at the tree in, in Romans 9, 10, and 11, and how Israel's talked about there, and how Gentiles have been grafted into this olive tree. And so we said that God has one people, believing Jews, and in the New Testament, Gentiles get grafted into this tree. And so we have Jews and Gentiles that believe in Jesus, and that's who makes up the people of God. We said that God hasn't failed in saving Israel, like it wasn't his plan to save national Israel and then his plans failed. That God has always planned to save a portion of national Israel. We said that there was definitely some advantages to being Jewish. We said that Paul specifically says that the people of God got the word. Jewish people had the Bible given to them in the Old Testament. 
that in large part other nations that weren't Jewish, they didn't have God's worship. They didn't know who God was. And so there was a big advantage to being Jewish. And we, we compared it to the advantage that, um, that Logan has growing up in a Christian family here. Because he's born into a family with Ben and Andrea and they're Christians, it doesn't make Logan a Christian. So being born into the Jewish nation in the Old Testament, it didn't make you a Christian. It didn't make you safe with God. But it did give you a huge advantage in the way that Logan will be exposed to the gospel very early in life. He will come to know who Yahweh is at a very early age. Whereas if Logan was born in Iraq to a Muslim family, he would not be exposed to the gospel most likely very early. So is there an advantage to being born into a Christian family? Absolutely. Does it save you? Absolutely not. True Christians are people who respond to Christ, not just people who are born into families that worship God. And so we said that, yes, there's advantages, but it doesn't guarantee salvation. We really looked at how, in the New Testament, Jesus is shown to be the real descendant of Abraham, and then anybody who is in Christ is now part of God's chosen people. We said that the church doesn't replace Israel, but that's a, that's a bad way to look at it, and that's a wrong way to look at it. The church doesn't replace Israel. Instead, in the New Testament, we found out that Israel is bigger than we thought. That Israel includes not just national Jews that are saved, but also believing Gentiles. And so, looking at the New Testament, it really seems to tear down the idea of national Jewish Israel being what saves kind of tears down that notion and shows that it's believing Jews and believing Gentiles that are God's people. All right? Any questions that I can answer on that before we move into kind of our second point for seeing why we're going to approach this as a second coming and not a rapture passage? Any questions about Israel, church, and how those fit together? If you didn't get to hear last week's sermon, I would encourage you to listen to it because we go into far more detail about why I see those two together. You don't have to agree with me on that. You don't have to agree on that to be a member here or to be like in good fellowship here. Like we can dialogue about this, disagree about it, and it'd be fine. This is not something that we have to agree on. But I do feel it necessary to share with you why I'm going to teach chapter 4 at the end as second coming and not rapture. And that's a big reason why. Because I see Israel and the church being one people of God and not two. Okay? Alright, today we're going to go back and look at some of the uh, second coming slash rapture passages a little bit more in depth. And I want to show some things that we can agree on. Things that we can look forward to and hope in about the return of Jesus. And then I'm going to show you some things that we can disagree on for why I see these passages teaching absolute no rapture. Okay? Does Israel have a translation in my Hebrew to what is the literal translation of the Say that again? What is the, like, from Hebrew? Oh, like the, the word? Yes. I don't know off the top of my head, no. Um, I can find out. Yeah, I don't know off the top of my head. Alright, before we get into that, I want you to take just a couple of minutes. I want you to write down uh, maybe three to four things that you are looking forward to most about Jesus coming back. When you think about Jesus coming back, what does that make you look forward to? What are some things that you know that will happen when Jesus comes back that cause you to look forward to, to anticipate, or to get excited about the return of Jesus? So take a couple of minutes, think through what are some things that 
that you're looking forward to that you know will happen when Jesus returns. And then we'll look at some things that I jotted down today as well. All right, what are some of the things that you guys wrote down? Things that you're looking forward to anticipating about Jesus coming back. Okay, no more suffering for your children. Good. Okay, fellowship with him. Some other things that we can look forward to about the return of Jesus. Okay, seeing loved ones that are that are Christian that have gone before us that have already passed away. Okay. No need to feel like you have to protect your kids, shield them, guard them. Yeah, brought back to to what God's original design was for His creation. New bodies. Okay, new bodies, which has a lot of implications that that go along with what we're talking about—the lack of suffering. Uh, anything else that we can look forward to? Return of Jesus. All right, no more fear. Okay. Yeah, completely unhindered from sin, so that we can enjoy that that joyous fellowship with Christ that we were designed for. That so often is hindered by our selfish. Um, selfish motives, selfish tendencies, and desire to, um, in, in most cases, worship ourselves rather than worship the one that we were created to enjoy. Um, yeah, all these things are reasons that we can look forward to Jesus coming back, and they're all things that are presented to us in Scripture. I jotted down two things that I wanted us to look at specifically this morning. So in your notes, the believer's hopes, a point that we can agree on. And we can agree that this is going to happen whether we believe in a rapture or not a rapture. That at some point, whether it's at the second coming, or if you believe in the rapture, you can believe that maybe this happens at the rapture. These are things that we can agree on. These things will happen. These things will happen when Jesus returns. The first thing is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. He will bring justice to all situations. He will bring justice to all situations. This is such an encouragement to me that we serve a just God whose judgments are right and pure and true. And we know from Scripture that when Jesus comes back, his justice will reign supreme in all situations. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, if you want to look there with me. And we'll get into this passage more in depth, uh, probably in the fall. We'll start reading in uh, verse 5. It says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Okay, so Paul is continuing to write to this church at Thessalonica. He is encouraging them about their suffering. There's evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. So it implies that things aren't good right now for this church. 
But there is trials, hard times oppressing them. Verse 6, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, a, this is a really good passage because it describes the fact that when Jesus comes back, all our situations are made right. It says that right now, church, you're enduring suffering. You are being oppressed by lost people. There's persecution that's happening in the church. Wrong is being done to you. And he says when Jesus comes back, that will be fixed. It says that Jesus will consider it just to repay those who have afflicted his people. That he's going to grant relief and salvation to his people. So when Jesus comes back, the suffering stops for his people and the suffering begins for those that aren't his people. And I forget which, where we were at, but we talked about this in the sense that would you rather suffer here on this earth and be persecuted here on this earth or suffer for eternity in God's wrath? Like it really makes the suffering that the church endures here seem like nothing in comparison to what lost people will experience forever. And so the encouragement that Paul's giving to the church is, look, when Jesus comes back, justice is going to happen. Relief is going to come to those that have been faithful. Torment is going to come to those who have been oppressing God's people. If you want to write underneath this in your notes, wrong situations will be dealt with. Wrong situations will be dealt with. That could be construed or taken wrong, though. If you look at that in the wrong light, you could say, well, I'm just not going to pray for those guys who are beating me up every day all the time, and God's going to deal with them. We're also commanded that. Hey, we're supposed to be praying for those people and trying to witness to those who are oppressing us. Um, we don't need to guard ourselves against looking at that in the negative aspect of us. God's going to take care of my duty tomorrow. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, let me touch on that in just a second because that, that's a great point, and I think that um, understanding what you're saying there helps us find the satisfaction for justice that we really long for. And I'm going to show you two ways that we find that. Um, wrong situations being dealt with. In Jude verse 14, because there's only one uh, chapter. In Jude verse 14 it says, it was, about, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones 
to execute judgment on all, and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds and ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. This is another prophecy about when Jesus comes back that wrong situations are dealt with. How does that, how does that affect me? Like, what does that do for me? If I'm looking forward to Jesus coming back in wrong situations or... I'm looking forward to Jesus coming back in the sense that justice gets dealt with. It means that when I'm being wronged, I can find encouragement that Jesus is going to deal with this. Okay? What you're talking about, Jason, I can pray and I'm told to pray for my enemies. Because I can pray that justice towards what they're doing to me will be executed on the cross. That that's why the cross is so important, because God executes justice by paying for the sins of believers on the cross. So I pray for my enemies who are lost, that God's justice will be executed on their life, but that it will be executed on the cross. That they will come to repentance, that they will receive Christ as their Savior, and then their sins are dealt with on the cross. So that I still get the satisfaction of my justice where I say, this sin needs to be paid for. This sin needs to be dealt with. This was unfairness towards me. And when someone gets saved, we find satisfaction for all those feelings that we have when we look to the cross. Because everything that we did that deserved justice was also dealt with on the cross. But the comfort comes from the fact that if they don't repent, they will still receive the justice they deserve as God's wrath is poured out on them. So the encouragement that it gives me is that I can be in a situation, have injustice done towards me... And be encouraged and sit there and think, at some point this gets dealt with. Either this person through my prayers and through my proclamation of the gospel is going to get saved, turn from their sin, and then we can hug and rejoice over the fact that the wrong they did to me was dealt with on the cross. They don't owe me anything. But I can also take comfort in the fact that God doesn't overlook the injustice done to me, and he will deal with it when he returns if they don't repent. So it's encouraging to the believer to know that justice will be exercised because we have right feelings when wrong is done to us to feel like it should be dealt with. Jordan and I were having a conversation last week. There was a situation going on um, with her roommates, and she felt like injustice, wrong was being done to her. The encouragement that she can find is that God's going to deal with it. He either deals with it on the cross or he deals with it when he comes back. Wrong situations get dealt with. I want you to see that. I want you to to long for the return of Jesus, knowing that that's something to look forward to. That the suffering stops for believers, the, the persecution and trials that we may experience one day, but certainly our brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing today, that justice will be executed on those situations. That's encouraging that we serve a God who doesn't miss anything, who doesn't overlook anything, who doesn't tolerate anything. That his justice will be executed. He's not a blind judge. He doesn't miss things. He sees the injustice done to us. But the flip side of that is that right situations are brought to life. Brought to light. Wrong situations get dealt with when Jesus comes back. Right situations are brought to light. Second Peter 3.10. We're going to look at this passage a little bit more in depth here in a minute. But it says... But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So there is a bringing to light the things that have been done on the earth. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. 
Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, that each one will receive his commendation from God. In Revelation twenty-two twelve. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. So as a Christian, I can take comfort in the fact that justice is going to come on people that have dealt wrongly with me. But I can also, I can also find comfort in the sense that Jesus is coming to expose everything that I've done for him. Everything that's gone unnoticed. Everything that you've done faithfully that hasn't garnered any human recognition. Things that you have, you have done faithfully for the king. Those are things that will be committed by God when he returns. Nothing goes unnoticed. You don't serve faithfully for your life, yet get no commendation for that. That when Jesus comes, everything gets exposed. All your faithfulness, all your right motives, all the things that you have seek, sought to done out of right motive for God gets exposed. And it gets rewarded and it gets committed. And that should be comforting to us. Because it, it kind of goes into that funnel of justice. That Jesus comes to repay evil and to reward those that have been faithful to him. Everything gets exposed and we are rewarded for the things that we have done. Not from a salvation standpoint. We don't earn our salvation by our good works by any means. But we are told that there is commendation coming for those that are faithful. And we can find comfort in that. We are rescued from our present suffering, harm and pain, and we are rescued from eternal wrath. First Peter chapter 4. Verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when, the, when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Again, Peter's making that comparison. You want to suffer as a Christian, not as a sinner. The suffering for a sinner lasts for eternity. The suffering for a Christian lasts for a finite amount of time. So be found faithful to suffer just as Christ suffered, knowing that when Christ returns, the suffering stops and justice is brought to this earth. That should bring encouragement to us as Christians. Why do I think what's going on in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-7 supports the no-rapture view? This is a point that we don't have to agree on. We agree on the fact, we agree on the fact that when Jesus comes, justice happens. We don't have to agree that this shows that there's no rapture. Alright, but this is where I see the no-rapture from this. The positive encouragement, the reward, the glorification... And the negative warning, judgment, and eternal punishment seem to refer to the same time in history. The positive encouragement, which is reward, glorification, and the negative warning, judgment, and eternal punishment seem to refer to the same time in history. We go back to 2 Thessalonians 1. Look, what, look what's going on here. Verse 6. 
God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When does this happen? When does that judgment happen? When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Well, when does the glorification happen for a believer? Well, we would say it happens when we are resurrected, right? When we are raised to life, given new bodies that no longer sin, we are brought into a glorified state. So if I'm reading this passage, if I'm just taking this passage for what it says, and this isn't a, a strange, prophetic passage that has allegory and symbolism into it. I mean, this is it's just straight letter. This is straight letter, narrative type letter. Hey, this is what you can look forward to as a believer. And he's saying judgment's coming on the earth. When? On the day that Jesus comes to be glorified in his saints. And so to me, the, the rest, the glorification happens as well as the judgment and there's not a separation of time if we believe in a rapture if we approach this as a rapture passage then we would have to see a separation of time that relief comes in this secret gathering of the church away where we get new bodies that's what first thessalonians 4 says that will be raised to life new bodies dead in christ will be raised first but then if we believe in a rapture there's a time gap before final judgment actually comes this passage, those that believe in a rapture, this passage is believed to be not the rapture, but the second coming. So even if you believe in a rapture, you would say this is a second coming passage. But what's going on here is, is what's happening in 1 Thessalonians 4, right? That we get new bodies, that we experience glorification. So to me, why does this support no rapture? Because I see these things happening simultaneously, not with a time gap in between them. Okay? You don't have to agree with me on that. That's just... Where I'm coming from and why we're going to approach 1 Thessalonians the way that we are. A couple other passages to kind of reinforce that. Matthew 13, verse 47 through 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, a separation that seems to happen at the same time where judgment and reward happen together. John 5, 28-29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Seems to happen very close together simultaneously. Doesn't seem to have a big uh, time gap. Those that believe in a rapture, honestly, those that believe in a rapture would see over a thousand years between these two things. That reward happens for the church, and then it's over a thousand years later that God actually brings punishment and eternal judgment on the unbeliever. Big time gap that doesn't seem to be present there when we're just rolling along and talking about what's going to happen in the future. All right? But you don't have to agree with me on that. We do have to agree on the fact that justice is coming when Jesus comes back. And that's encouraging for us. 
Second, the second thing that we can agree on comes from 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, so we're encouraged by the fact that God doesn't miss anything. He's going to judge people that are wrong against us, that do wrong against us. He's going to reward those that are faithful. Then 1 Corinthians 15, things will be renewed and made right. Things will be renewed and made right. And Jason was talking about this earlier. The hope that we have of seeing how God intended it to be. This is, this is what God's plan and desire was. This is what his perfect design looks like. When there is no sin, there is no death, there is no suffering and pain. We're going to get to see that as believers. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 50. It's a big passage on uh, resurrection. Verse 50 says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Alright, so normal flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It's the imperishable. It's the resurrection body that inherits the kingdom of God. I think this helps support, we're not talking about it today, I think this passage lends itself to support a non-literal millennial reign on this earth. Okay? There's people that believe that Jesus comes back, rules on this earth, but there's still death that happens, there's still rebellion. Uh, Jesus has to defeat Satan at the end of a thousand years. This passage seems to indicate that the kingdom of God can't have flesh and blood in it like normal. That the kingdom of God is something spiritual. That it's the resurrection body that inherits the kingdom of God. Okay? That's a side note, I'm not talking about that really today, but just kind of throw that in there. Verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Now, would we agree this is probably talking about the exact same thing in 1 Thessalonians 4? The idea that we're being raised to life, new bodies, 1 Thessalonians 4. When Jesus comes back, the dead in Christ will rise first, and those who remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with him. Okay? Same idea going on here in 1 Corinthians 15. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Okay? Some of us are going to sleep. Some of us are going to die. He tells us that in 1 Thessalonians 4. Some have already died. We're not all going to sleep. We're not all going to die. Some of us will be alive when Jesus comes back. If not us, our children's 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 children. Somebody, Christians, will be alive when Jesus comes back. So we won't all sleep, but we all will all be changed. All of us get to participate in the glorified body. Verse 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on that imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Tons of encouragement that comes from this passage. Things will be renewed and made right. I jotted down in my notes. Me, I personally, will be remade in such a way where I do things rightly. The things that I want to do. I won't be frustrated anymore with making wrong choices. Remember in Romans 7, Paul describes this mindset of in the spirit he wants to do right. 
but he's still subjected to some degree to his flesh, and he, and he makes stupid decisions. As Christians, we have to confess sin constantly. Why? Because we don't do the things that we want to do. There's coming a day where there will be no more need for accountability. We won't have to get together and talk about how we're doing. We won't have to get together and confess sin to each other. We won't have to get together and express frustration about how we wish we had done things differently this past week. I get, I get so tired. It, 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 it's, it's necessary. It's absolutely necessary that we get together with other believers and spur one another on to good works. That we make sure that we don't get deceived by sin. The book of Hebrews talks about both aspects of that. We encourage each other to do right. We make sure that we're not doing wrong. So it's necessary. I get so tired of having to do it though. I get so tired of having to get together with other people and talk about how we wish last week was different. I wish I'd have done this instead of this. I wish I'd have done this better. And the encouragement to us is that there's a time coming when we won't have to meet about it because we will be made right. We will be recreated, new bodies that don't sin. We will always make right choices. Righteousness will reign supreme. I've defined righteousness before as doing right all the time. It's, it's always being right. Not doing bad things, always doing good things with the right motive, right purpose. There's coming a day when we will all do that. Imagine the utopia of being in a society where everybody's always making right choices. Where people are always valuing the needs of others above their own needs. Everybody's needs get taken care of in that type of society. No selfishness, no sin, no mistreatment. Paul was so frustrated in Romans 7. I see in the word what I'm supposed to be doing. I long to do it. I talk to you guys all the time in the groups of guys that I get together with. I want to do this. I wish I did that. I wish I made right choices in the morning and, and, and got up and, and did this. Or I wish when I was at work I did this better and I didn't do this. There's coming a day when all that has to stop. We don't have to fight anymore to do right. It'll naturally happen. No more sin. We get made right. That's what's being described here in 1 Corinthians 15. I will be made righteous and fit for the kingdom. A couple other passages you could jot down for this. 2 Timothy 4.8. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We, we have the righteousness of Christ right now in the sense that if I were to stand before God today, despite all my sin, I would be found perfect. God would declare me righteous before him if I were to stand before him right now. Because I put my faith in Christ. My sin has been transferred to Christ. His perfection has been transferred to me. But there's coming a day when that actually becomes full reality. Where I get to enjoy all the implications of that. And I get a new body that is made righteous. Made into the image of Christ. And I always do right. I'm always going to be righteous. 2 Peter 3.13 But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's the future hope of the believer. That we're going to enjoy a new heaven and a new earth, like I said, where it's just righteousness. The environment, the community is described by always doing right. It's going to be an unbelievable eternity. It's what we had to look forward to. And lastly, 1 John 3, 2. 
Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The implication there, John says, is that if we're going to be made perfect, let's start living as perfect as we can now. Let's start living as close as we can to what eternity is going to be like. Okay? So, we can agree on the fact that when Jesus comes back, things will be renewed and made right. Now, why do I think this passage in 1 Corinthians 15 supports the no rapture view? Well, first, we're told that creation is waiting for our glorification. So it too can be restored, seemingly at the same time. Romans chapter 8. And this passage, conveniently, is also why it would lend itself towards no millennial reign. But we don't have to agree on that either. But in Romans 8, 18. Okay, first Corinthians 15, what did we just describe? We described this, this glorification that's going to happen, right? That the perishable puts on imperishable. That we're raised to life, we're changed. Not everybody dies, but we all will be changed, just like First, First Thessalonians four says. So there's glorification being described here. The first passage we looked at, Second Thessalonians one six through seven, says, "On that day, He comes to be glorified in His saints." Then we have here in Romans eight eighteen through twenty three, talking about the future glorification. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Again, that same thing. Yes, we're suffering now, but when we compare it to what eternity looks like, it's nothing. It's, it's, it, doesn't, it's not, it doesn't matter. The suffering that we endure now doesn't compare to the glory that's coming, and it certainly doesn't compare to the suffering that's coming to others in eternity. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for what? The revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You do realize that while we're born into sin, we're not the only ones that experience sin, right? I mean... The whole earth has been subjected to sin. When Adam and Eve chose to sin in the garden, when they made that choice to sin in the garden, all of creation fell. All of creation fell. See, I don't think it's God's design for there to be destructive tornadoes, destructive earthquakes. Those things weren't part of the garden, right? Like Adam and Eve wouldn't have been sitting around in the garden enjoying the fruit and, and just enjoying paradise and then a tornado warning come on. And, oh, we've got to take cover because there's a destructive storm that's going to look to take away everything that we enjoy. No. No. These destructive type things that are a part of creation are an indicator to us that, that it's broken. It's broken. All of creation's broken. Not just us that inhabit this earth, but all the universe is broken. And Paul is telling us, you guys think you're looking forward to Jesus coming back. The earth, he kind of personifies the earth. He says, the earth can't wait for that day to happen. It says, um, verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption 
of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. When I read that passage, to me, the indication is, is that creation experiences the renewal at the same time the believer does. See, to believe in the rapture implies that creation doesn't get fixed for over a thousand years later. So would it make sense for Paul to say, man, creation can't wait for Jesus to come back for the rapture because then it's only a thousand more years before it gets fixed. No, like the hope seems to be, wow, when Jesus comes back, when, when we put on the imperishable, when we're fixed and renewed, creation gets fixed and renewed at the same time. To me, that, 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 the, the weight of what Paul's saying there loses its weight if it doesn't happen at the same time. Like, can't wait for this to happen, the creation says. Why? Because we want to be fixed too. The creation wants to be fixed. But if it doesn't happen for another thousand years seems to kind of lose the emphasis going on in that passage. That's one reason I think 1 Corinthians 15 points to no rapture. But if we go back to 1 Corinthians 15, this isn't a huge point, but I think it's a good point. If we want to take it literally for what it says, it says in verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you in a mystery, we shall not all sleep, or we aren't going to die, but we shall be changed. We are going to be resurrected in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. When? The last trumpet. The last trumpet. Doesn't that seem to indicate end? End? Now, when we first talked about the rapture, we said that to believe in a rapture, we believe in a trumpet. Like... People that believe in a rapture would believe that a trumpet sounds. But this says, this happens at the last trumpet. Now, if, there, if the last trumpet is at the rapture, then we're fine. But if there's another trumpet after the rapture, then we got some confusion. And if you look at Matthew 24, this is a passage that is viewed as the second coming. By second coming only people and by rapture people. But this passage is talking about the second coming. Matthew 24, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, people that believe in a rapture and a tribulation would obviously say, yep, this is the second coming. It's coming after the rapture. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. If you read the corresponding passage in Mark, it says that it'll pull them from earth to heaven, implying that there are believers where? On earth and in heaven. That's consistent with 1 Thessalonians 4, right? That when Jesus returns, those that have already died who are in heaven are coming with him. So they're gathered up in heaven. Hey, trumpet call, everybody that's dead, that's in heaven, we're going. 
Then the trumpet call. Everybody that's on earth was gathered together. We're all getting raised right now. We're getting new bodies. First Corinthians 15 says this happens at the last trumpet. We're told in Matthew 24, there's a trumpet at the second coming. So for me, I have a hard time saying that, that, that there's a rapture where we put on the imperishable. If these verses seem to indicate it happens at the end. The last trumpet is when this happens. Not the second to last, not the third to last. The last trumpet is when this happens, according to this passage. It's not a huge point, but it is, to me, a point that if I look at this and read this, I'm looking for the last trumpet for this to happen, right? I'm looking for the last trumpet to put on my imperishable body. 1 Thessalonians 4 says that when Jesus comes back, I put on my imperishable body. So how do I read 1 Thessalonians 4? As I search scripture, I have to read that as the second coming and not a pre-coming to the second coming. And we don't have to agree on that. What we do agree on is that when Jesus comes back, at some point everything's made right. Rapture people would say it's, it's in big stages and it takes a while. For the earth, it takes over a thousand years after the rapture. But if we don't believe in a rapture, we just say, yep, everything's getting made right and it all happens at the same time. Okay? We don't have to agree on that part. But that, again, is some support for why I want to approach it in the way that we're going to approach it. All right, so two things that we can agree on about the second coming. He brings justice to all situations, and things will be renewed and made right. How do we anticipate this? Last thing we're going to look at. How do we anticipate? Points to agree on. Back in 2 Peter chapter 3, another big return of Jesus passage. We've already looked at a couple of the verses on their own, but we're going to look at the whole passage now together. The thing that we can agree on is, first... Don't get discouraged while waiting for his return. Instead, use his delay to repent and call others to repentance. Don't get discouraged while waiting for his return. Instead, use his delay to repent and to call others to repentance. Second point, don't get deceived while waiting for his return. Instead, Recognize the signs to intensify your desire for his return and keep enduring until then. So don't get discouraged. Don't get discouraged with the suffering that we endure as a church. Don't get discouraged in the fact that it's taking a, what seemingly to us is a long time, over 2,000 years. Even though Peter tells us 1,000 years is like a day, a day is like a 1,000 years to God. He, he doesn't have the same time frame as we do. He says, don't get discouraged. He's coming back. Recognize that his delay is about repentance. Now, I need to share this with you in my sixth grade Bible class. We can thank God that he hasn't come back yet or that he didn't come back two years ago. Because there are people that have gotten saved in the last two years. Right? Like that's what Peter tells us. That he delays his return so that people can continue to repent. So thanks be to God for some people that he hadn't come back two years ago because people got saved during that time. Some of you that got saved later on in life, you have a lot of reason to rejoice that Jesus didn't come back earlier than your salvation. That he delayed his return for repentance. So don't get discouraged by the delay and don't, um, don't get deceived. Because people, different passages say, people will say, Where's the promise of his return? I mean, it's been over 2,000 years since you guys claim he walked this earth. You really think he's coming back? He's not coming back. 
It's the same thing that the people in Noah's time said. You really think it's going to rain? I mean, what even is rain? Noah, I mean, you're telling us that it's going to rain. I have no clue what you're talking about. Do you really think that's going to happen? Let's look in 2 Peter 3, verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And Peter says, before the flood, if you just looked around as a scientist, you would have observed the fact that this earth seems to be designed to perish by water. That's where a lot of Christian scientists believe that there was a huge water canopy that surrounded the earth, protected it from the UV rays. That's why people lived longer. And the part of the flood and where we get so much water is it comes from that water canopy crashing down on the earth, water springing up from underneath the earth. And it would have been a devastating thing. Peter says, if you look at the design of the earth back then, it was set up to be destroyed by water. Verse 7, but the same word, the heavens and earth now exist are stored up for fire. Being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And I've shared with you before, I've watched um, secular shows on the History Channel. These type of things that talk about top ten ways that the earth will be destroyed. And they all deal with fire. They all deal with fire. Volcanoes, meteors, something that deals with fire is always on the top ten list of how this earth will be destroyed. I mean, even lost people realize what Peter's saying. If you look around, this earth is set up to be destroyed by fire. Verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for it? And hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We'll see some more good stuff that we won't take the time to read in verses 14 through 18. Peter's two main things that he's drilling them with here is don't get discouraged about the delay and don't get deceived by people who tell you that Jesus isn't coming back. Underneath that first point, don't get discouraged. Though Christians long for Christ's return and the defeat of all evil, as long as the present period of history lasts, an opportunity remains for people to turn to God in faith. Matthew chapter 6 verse 10 says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're told to pray for God's kingdom to come. We're told in 2 Peter to hasten that day. One of the ways that we pray and actively seek for the kingdom to come, one way that we actively hasten for the day to come, is we actively share the gospel and we preach repentance so that people get saved. Because God is obviously not coming back yet because he still desires to save people. So we participate in that by preaching the gospel faithfully. 
in Romans 2, 1 through 4. Paul challenges the, the people here to, to not misinterpret the delay in Jesus' return. It says in verse 3, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? These people had misinterpreted it and thought that the lack of judgment means God's approval. Paul says the lack of judgment is because God's giving you a chance to repent before he comes back. You can jot down um, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, and 2 Peter 3, 12. Both those passages deal with Jesus' desire for all to come to repentance. Okay? So don't get discouraged. Recognize that Jesus is waiting to come back so people can repent. Don't get deceived. Instead, recognize the signs to intensify your desire for his return. The Bible tells us a lot of things that need to happen before Jesus comes back. And I share with my sixth grade class, these things are not meant to be a predictor for when Jesus will come back. Every time we see this is going to happen before Jesus comes back, it's meant to excite us about Jesus' return. So when I hear rumors of wars and earthquakes, it ought to excite me that Jesus is coming because he said these type of things will be happening before I come back. So I see these things happening and I get excited and I say, hey, Jesus said that was going to happen. So, yeah, it's been 2,000 years, but he said those things would be happening before he came back. So the signs are meant to intensify, to get us excited about Jesus coming back. Um, Luke twenty one twenty eight. We'll just look at a couple of these real quick. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He had just listed off some signs that would happen before the coming of the Son of Man. When these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads. It's getting close. It's intensifying us to get excited about the return of Jesus. 1 John 2.28 is another passage. Alright, so how do we respond to the promise of Jesus' return? We don't get discouraged about the delay. And we don't get deceived in thinking that he's not coming back. Why do I think first or 2 Peter 3, 1-18 points to no rapture? First thing, the encouragement isn't to look for the rapture well before his coming judgment. But instead to anticipate his second coming. See, he describes the fact that, hey, there's going to be people that say, well, where's Jesus? Like, thought he was coming back. Peter doesn't give any type of encouragement to those believers to look for a rapture where they're taking away before the judgment. There's no indication of that. They're told to, to recognize the signs of his coming, to look forward to it, to keep enduring and we see that theme reiterated in 1 Thessalonians 5. We're going to get to this passage um, really soon. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brother, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now day of the Lord is, is, is usually understood to be second coming. Okay, so Paul is writing to this church and says, you have no need to anything written to you. You're fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 
While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So then let us sleep as others, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So we're told here to be looking for the second coming. Be looking for it, anticipating it. In um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. There was some confusion as to whether or not the second coming had already happened. You get that? Like people were saying that the second coming had already happened. And Paul says, don't believe that foolishness. If if you have a spirit come tell you, if someone speaks it to you, if you get a letter that's signed by me that says that the second coming has already happened, he says you ignore that. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will come will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. There was confusion about the second coming already happening. If I'm Paul and I believe in a rapture and Adam McLeod back there is concerned that the second coming has already happened, I would probably write to Adam McLeod and say, dude, the second coming hasn't happened because you're still here. Like you, you didn't get raptured away, right? But he says what most people would say, the Antichrist hasn't come yet. The Antichrist hasn't come. The, the rebellion hasn't happened yet, Adam McLeod. The second coming hasn't happened. All these things have to happen first. If there's a rapture before the second coming, all I have to write is, dude, you're still here. Like, obviously Jesus hasn't come back to judge because you're still here. You would be out of here before that happens. But there's no indication of that. The encouragement that's given is that things are still going to get worse, bud. Like, you think things are bad now, church? Things are going to get worse. The man of lawlessness is going to come. There's going to be a big rebellion. Then the second coming happens. So to me, that's a big indicator that there is no rapture because there's no encouragement to be looking for it here in a passage where you would seemingly expect it to be. And um, we'll skip those verses. When his coming judgment does come, the implication is that the opportunity for repentance will be finished. 2 Peter 3 points to no rapture to me because why has Jesus not come back yet? So that people can still repent. The implication is that when Jesus comes back, there's there's no more repentance. But see, to believe in a rapture is to believe that Jesus comes back and then there's still seven and a half years, seven years to, to repent. And even further, there's a thousand year reign where people can repent. 2 Peter 3 loses a lot of its weight if people can repent after after the return of Jesus, right? Because Peter says the reason he's taking so long is that people have to repent before he comes back. If you can repent after Jesus comes back, then why is he taking so long? It loses its weight. 
If people can get saved in a so-called tribulation, if people can get saved in a so-called millennial reign on this earth, then why not go ahead and get that started? If people can still get saved in those times, why not go ahead and start it? Peter seems to indicate when Jesus comes back, the time of repentance is over, people. I am waiting so that you can repent. Because when I come, the door of repentance is shut. And we will divide you up. And justice will be brought. And I will bring affliction on those who have persecuted my people. And I will bring rest to my people. Alright? Um, as authoritative as that sounds, we don't have to agree on that. I mean, we can, we can disagree on that. I mean, it sounds really good. Um, but what we do have to agree on is that we don't need to get discouraged. Because Jesus is coming back. And we don't need to get deceived by people who say he isn't. We need to continue to endure, knowing that justice is coming when Jesus comes back. All situations will be made right. In fact, all of creation will be made right. Righteousness will be brought to this earth. All right, I'm going to close by reading one chapter, and then we'll pray. Take a short break. We'll come back. We'll sing together. We'll take the Lord's Supper together. All right? In Revelation 19. I like to call this passage the two suppers. Either you're invited to supper or you will be supper. Alright? Revelation 19. After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immortality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. This is the, the people of God praising God for his judgment on, on wickedness. The 24 elders and the, four living, and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen and Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It has granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet, worshipped him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. You worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Those of, us that are, those of us that are believers get invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb when Jesus returns. But in verse 11, then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horse. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. This is the part where people become the supper. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. 
and the beast was captured. And with it the false prophet who in its presence has done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that come from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. When Jesus comes back, he rewards those that are faithful and he judges those that have been unfaithful, those that have opposed his people. That's the encouragement for us as Christians. Let's pray. God, we praise you and thank you for your word. We praise you and thank you that it's clear to us, clear on some really important things, that when you come back, you make things right. And God, while it may not be as clear as we want it to be about everything else in regards to the timing and how everything plays out in the future, God, we are so thankful that you have been clear about the important things in Scripture. Things that we can agree on in Scripture. And God, I praise you and thank you that we can rally around those and we can seek to understand the deeper things in a spirit of unity and humility on points that we may disagree about. And God, we pray that you would come soon. That you would come quickly. We are excited and longing for that day. God, help us to be faithful with the delay. That we would call people to repentance. God, if there's anyone here this morning that has not repented of their sin, not put their faith in Jesus Christ, we praise you that you have not come back yet, giving them extended time to repent and be saved. God, I pray that we would be faithful to proclaim the gospel. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Take like two, three minute break. We'll get the kids inside from the heat. We'll come back together. We're going to sing together. We're going to worship together. We're going to pray together before we leave today.